Welcome to the Gifted Life Podcast, where we have conversations about organ, tissue, and eye donation. I'm Lori Steele. I'm Joey Boudreaux. And I'm Sarah Blakemore. Which is not Sally Gentry. What? What? Yep, I am (laughs) not Sally. Doing great. Happy to be here. See you in the halls. What do you do? Uh, Well, I'm a family advocate here at LOPA. (laughs) Yep. Um, And I've been a longtime proponent and advocate for organ donation. And you discovered me, luckily enough. (laughs) Oh, um, see, I like when they remember the little people. (laughs) Right. All right. Graduate of LSU. Yes. Social worker. Yes. And I knew one day, I knew you're meant for for great things. So you um, are touched by donation. Your brother um, is a hero. Yes. My brother, Dougie, was an organ donor. And um, he is the reason that we are all here. And my family is such an advocate for organ donation and making life happen. And when she was in college and trying to figure out her path, Mm. you just, her passion, like she was going to do something good. And I'm so happy and pleased that you are choosing to help us make life happen. That's so amazing. Now she's here because who's out? Who are we missing? Where's our key? That girl. That's (laughs) very nice. So Sally is off uh, at a conference, learning more great things to bring back um, to the gifted life. So Sarah, we appreciate you. Yep. Glad to be here. Yeah. Here on the podcast, lots to talk about today. Uh, up first, domino liver transplants. Yeah, what is that? What is exactly? it? Exactly. <laughs> it's all about no organ being wasted. How this rare procedure is saving more lives. Okay. And who's your greatest critic? If you're like most people, Joey. it's you <laughs> <laughs> or my boss, Joey. <laughs> <laughs> so how do you take back control and silence your inner critic? All right. We have lots to get to here on The Gifted Life. We hope that you share what we all learn here on The Gifted Life. We try to make it as easy as possible. We're easy to find once you find us. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to us. You can find us on Apple Podcasts or whatever your favorite podcast app might be. Or you can find us on our website at thegiftedlife.org. Good. Active on social media, guys. Joey, you getting better at that? Yeah, some. That's a no. Facebook. Sarah? (laughs) I'm doing my best. (laughs) That's where the young kids live, right? We're there too on Facebook, the Gifted Life Podcast, Twitter and Instagram at Gifted Life Pod. Like I said, we try to be as easy as possible to find. Our goal is to spur those healthy conversations about organ, tissue, and eye donation. And we are ready to share now. Hang on to your hats. Here on The Gifted Life, we are so pleased that Dr. John Seal is joining us once again. Hey, doctor. Hello. Hey, good to have you back. Abdominal organ transplant surgeon at Oshner Multi-Organ Transplant Institute. And we are picking this guy's brain again. You've listened to the podcast before. He's a great interview. Uh, but abdominal liver transplant, which is rare, right? So if you're out there asking yourself, what is it? I am too, doctor. What What is a abdominal liver transplant? <laughs> Uh, That's a very good question, and it's a little bit of a complicated answer, but it's something that I think we can talk through here. Um, I think the first point that I would want to make 
is that even though there are very few of these performed every year uh, in the United States and even worldwide, um, it is a really important example of our overall goal, which is to use every organ that we can every time. And even though it's a handful of livers, it matters quite a lot to those, you know, five to seven people a year who receive those livers. And I think our overall strategy in transplant and certainly among the OPOs across the country is to find ways to use every organ we can every time. And this is a great example of being creative uh, about figuring out how to use organs in domino liver transplant. So what is it and what, what would cause you to need a domino or need to enact a domino transplant, I guess, for a liver? Uh, I'm right. familiar with the kidney paired. And this is very unfamiliar to yeah. me. Yeah, this is, a, this is a little bit different than living donor, and it's a little, little bit different than a paired exchange. So it's a really unusual situation that occurs in just a handful of medical conditions. Um, and in this case, the case that we're kind of that kind of prompted this discussion uh, is a case of amyloidosis, and that's a very long, tricky word. And it basically means that the liver in these patients produces an abnormal protein called amyloid, and this amyloid is folded in a weird way. And this protein, over time, can stick to other tissues in the body. So it gets stuck in the heart, it can get stuck in the nerves, and it can get stuck in other tissues and cause different types of problems. And it builds up slowly over time. So it's not something that causes an immediate problem, but over the course of several decades, 30, 40 years, it can cause uh, heart failure, and it can cause really severe debilitating neuropathies. So in these situations, the best treatment for that is to remove that liver that produces that abnormal protein and replace it with a liver that does not produce that abnormal protein. And most livers produce a normal protein. So that's the indication for the liver transplant. The liver that they have, though, aside from producing this abnormal protein, actually works great. They have normal bilirubin, so it, it manages bile normally. They make normal proteins. They have normal coagulation. Structurally, the liver looks perfectly normal. If you look at it, you wouldn't even know that they had uh, any problem. So essentially, um, so it's a transplantable it's a, liver, you know. And, and so, yeah, what, what so exactly. At. When we look at it from that standpoint, someone else who has liver failure could use this liver, and it would work totally normally in that patient. The only caveat, the only catch is that you want to put it into someone that you don't expect to live for 50 or 60 years. Mm. So when we look for a good recipient for a domino transplant, you wouldn't put this in someone who's 18, 20 years old, mm. because you would imagine that that abnormal protein in the recipient could cause symptoms. Okay, so we typically look for recipients who are over the age of 60, um, who otherwise would not likely experience the effects of the abnormal amyloid protein over the remainder of their lifetime. So you mentioned... I'm in awe yeah. that we know all this. Yeah. Thank goodness. Too, <laughs> my goodness. Kind of weird. It's, <laughs> it's different. <laughs> It's, it's a pretty weird circumstance. Yeah, it is pretty incredible. Um, and the first one was done back in the uh, mid-1990s. 
out of um, King's College in London in the UK. A really smart group of folks uh, put their heads together to to try this. Uh, and then worldwide, a number had been done and followed up and was found to be really safe and effective. And now I think at, at most major centers in the United States, um, when they have a candidate whose indication for transplant is amyloid, then um, they'll often look at suitability for doing a domino. So you guys have partaken in the domino liver transplants. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, how that went? Yeah, right. So we had a, a situation. We had a, 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 a patient who was on the waiting list who had uh, amyloidosis. And in his situation, the amyloid protein had primarily affected his heart and he had progressive heart failure. And his heart function had gotten bad enough that he needed a combined heart and liver transplant. And so in this situation, it uh, became a little more uh, complicated because we had to coordinate the possibility of a domino transplant with a heart transplant as well. And so the way that it went in this case is we, we went through an evaluation with both the liver team and the heart team, and we got our teams together and we coordinated how we would first perform a combined heart and liver transplant. And in that case, uh, a donor became available uh, and the heart transplant was performed with the heart from this deceased donor. And that went first. And once the heart uh, gets put in and restarted, then we do the liver transplant. And so the liver transplant in this situation is a little bit different because we have to think about taking the liver out in a way that we can sew it back in in someone else. So you have to do it a little bit differently than you would normally, preserving as much of the length of the blood vessels as possible so that we have enough to sew into another recipient. So we very carefully took out the liver from the patient with amyloid, and we transplanted that deceased donor liver into that patient. And then the liver from the amyloid patient was taken into an adjoining room with another recipient and that transplant was performed in the standard way. So there was two recipient teams for livers and a recipient heart team, as well as the deceased donor team. So a lot of coordination of a lot of teams. My jaw's on the floor, right? One. <laughs> but so how long, I mean, is this all done in a couple of hours since you have these teams or can you walk us through that? Yeah, well, it takes several hours and the, the heart transplant portion usually takes uh, uh, around three hours. And then after that, we performed the, we take the patient off of bypass and restart the heart. And then we perform the liver transplant. A, a normal liver transplant takes around four hours. This one took probably around five or six hours because of the extra attention uh, we had to pay to taking out the liver in, in a safe way wow. to be transplanted again. And then the other recipient surgeon surgery takes about, uh, you know, four to five hours. So all in all, it was probably, uh, you know, close to 15 to 16 hours of operating. Wow. This is also incredible. I have a question. Sure. For the patient who's receiving the amyloid liver, do mm -hmm. they have to, mm -hmm. does that have to be disclosed that this is coming from a domino um, procedure it as does. well as? It does. Okay. Um, anytime, basically in transplant in general, 
it's certainly the approach that, that we take at our center, and I think that most centers do. Anytime there's some factor of the of the organ that you're transplanting that that might affect the outcomes, it's important to disclose that variable. And so we do that for a number of different conditions for uh, standard donors. And I think you've had podcasts on that with some of our other infectious mm-hmm. disease specialists. Mm-hmm. In this case, you know, the amyloid uh, was disclosed to the recipient. And we went over in detail that, you know, we didn't expect that this would cause any problems for many, many decades, that it's an opportunity to, you know, get a transplant sooner than he otherwise would have based on his MELD score. And um, and that otherwise we thought it was, a, you know, a really, a really good, high-quality liver. And we had had this discussion with him prior in anticipation of the possibility of uh, the domino happening. We had to look at our list at the time and took the first patient who fit the criteria based on age and mm-hmm. surgical complexity. Um, so he was a little bit prepared already to, to for this situation and, uh, uh, you know, was willing to accept the liver. I was thinking, you know, that obviously those patients would be on the same match run, on the same list. Mm, so you yeah. can then right. go to that next patient. Exactly so is right. there, is there, are there certain things that you guys have to do with the second patient now, uh, with the amyloidosis now impact or, you know, I know you said it's going to take a long time, but is, is there any treatment variations that you do, uh, besides just the typical immunosuppressants? Yeah, no, that's a that's a really good question, um, and I think that's something that's evolving uh, over time. Right now, we don't have any good treatments for amyloidosis in general, so there's not a lot you can do, you know, to mitigate the development of those symptoms over time. Uh, there are, and it's kind of beyond the scope of this podcast, but there are a lot of different uh, molecular subtypes of amyloidosis, and they each come with different sets of risk factors. Uh, so it's something that we monitor closely. Certain, certainly, we look for any early signs of neuropathy or, or things like that that we would expect as a possibility. But we do have uh, enough experience worldwide now to know that development of symptoms in the recipient is actually pretty rare. The most recent publication on this was uh, just a couple of years ago, and they looked at uh, over 500 cases of domino liver transplants worldwide over the past couple of decades, and uh, only two out of over 500 developed any type of symptoms at all. So as long as you select the right recipient and uh, carefully evaluate the liver that you're transplanting, the overall outcomes are really great, even even you know better than than average. Well, I'm sure you also had to um, build a level of trust too between you and the patients, which I think is commendable that you were able to create that as well. Uh, yeah, that it's really important to be able to do that. And what's really touching about this. Uh, uh, event is that they they didn't know each other going in and both of the domino participants the donor and the recipient um and uh just uh last month they met for the first time and we were able to capture some of that on video and it was a really emotional emotional moment it's a lot like an anonymous living donor but they both had gone through a liver transplant in this case and um it was really an extraordinary human connection there between the donor and the recipient and really something special to be a part of. Wow. Well, Dr. Seal, you were on. We were talking uh, about a little boy named Briggs who needed three transplants. And that family yeah. said you were, you were part 
of their family. Now you're not just a, a doctor who just knows lots of things. Yeah. While you were here, I said, hey, so what's next, doctor? And you said, you never know. I did not see this coming. <laughs> like, you got me. You got me. Yeah, yeah. It's really great. That's one of the great things about being a part of uh, transplant in general, organ donation or uh, recipient surgery is it's a really special human connection that you don't get with every branch of medicine. And um, I know we all feel pretty, uh, pretty blessed to be a part of that. Well, we um, are, are active on social media. A lot of the folks who are tied to donation in some way, shape, or form. And there was a, a picture of you from a, a party or, or something like that. And I just love, like, I, I feel like I know you're my buddy now, right? Um, so, but you were up there and every, that's my doctor. He helped me with this. Oh, he was so kind. Yeah. And, and I thought, my goodness, you know, you, you hope to leave your, your legacy, right? And we talk about these heroes um, and you're that one person making a difference uh, in, in a different way. Yeah, well, I appreciate that a lot. But yeah, I'll tell you what, there's a lot of people who go unnoticed in, in this process because they work behind the scenes. And, you know, what I really want to do is turn attention to, you know, how many people it takes uh, to make transplant possible and, you know, how many people's hard work go unnoticed. You kind of get all the attention if you're the one there doing the operation. But the reality is that there's dozens of people with every transplant that play a critical role in making it happen, um, all the way from the organ donation teams, uh, you know, in this, in, in our case over at LOPA, who do a lot of hard work to identify and and work with the donor families, and then all the people who get patients ready for transplant, make the transplants happen, and then that real critical care that happens after transplant. So it really is a whole team, and um, I think a lot of the other people should get as much attention as the surgeons do, to be honest with you. <laughs> the humble Dr. Seal. I see why people like you. <laughs> Obviously, uh, you guys have done one, you know, uh -huh. it, this past year. Is there anything that we can do to help spark more of these? Yeah, I think that's a that's an interesting question. There are a number of people looking at other potential opportunities to do a domino. There are a couple of other metabolic conditions, all of which are pretty rare, uh, but other conditions like amyloid where you potentially could use it as a domino. A lot of the other ones, though, raise some, some concerns about how well it would work long-term in a recipient, and I think that's caused some reservations. Mm -hmm. There's a couple of pediatric metabolic conditions. One's called maple syrup urine disease, and that could potentially use for domino, and that's been done at a couple of pediatric centers. It, it is a pretty rare event. The thing that I think you all do really well uh, at LOPA, and I'm sure at lots of OPOs around the country, is, you know, and that's what I, I led with, is you got to look at every organ every time. And you just got to think about what what can be possible. Uh, and you have to question things that have prevented us from doing stuff in the past. And so there may be a liver or a kidney or a heart or a lung offer that we normally would pass on. And we should think about why we why we pass on that. And is it something that we can modify? Mm -hmm. And it is, is it something that would work in a certain recipient if it doesn't work in another and keeping keeping your frame of mind like that for every don donation possibility, I think, is the key uh, to to increasing uh, donation across country. So, doctor, is there a video of those patients that are meeting? I'm sure people are going to want to learn more about this. Yeah, aside from it's really touching, Googling. and uh, I can get the link to you. Um, I know that our uh, marketing uh, folks. 
uh, have that, uh, but we can make sure that you get that. And if you want to include that on the website, I think it'd be it'd be great. I know I was really moved by it. I think it'd be a great thing for people to see. And we um, appreciate you. And I'm going to ask you again, just because I set you up last time, and look what you came back yes. with. Like, what's next? <laughs> <laughs> what's next <laughs> oh that's a good that's a great great question um i it's it's hard to top uh uh liver uh uh heart liver domino that that is a trifecta that i think doesn't come around too often um but i think we'll use our imaginations and come up with something good and always uh there are winners uh those lives being saved and those lives being celebrated. Dr. John Seal with Oshner, uh, we appreciate your time and your talent. Thank you. Thank you very much. At this point in the episode, we usually get some mental health advice from our girl, Sally. Since she's not here, oh, what you I need got, help Sarah? recovering, Sarah. No, it's so sad. Oh, but she'll be back, and so will you. We're gonna yes. invite you back. I would love to come back. What are you talking about today? Uh, so today we're gonna go ahead and talk about um, combating our inner critic. So Whoa. can y'all all agree that every, most people in this world are their own worst critics? Mm-hmm. Yeah. When it comes to things like work and body image, there's so much pressure and stress on us today that we're going to talk about some ways that we can combat taking a little bit of the pressure off ourselves. Yeah, that would be nice. I could use that. (laughs) Yeah, it's true. You know, we get a lot of pressure, like I said, so why not have some quick little tools that we can use to help ourselves? Okay. So essentially the idea behind this is being able to recognize your own thoughts, which Mm, sounds kind of crazy. We're thinking about our thinking. I talk to myself all the time. That's that's where I get good advice. Yes. (laughs) I have that mental, I talk to myself daily too. So it's recognizing the thoughts that are harmful to us. Because I think it's good at a certain level to be your own critic because you can feel motivated and prepared better. Mm -hmm. But what happens when your inner critic is the loudest voice? Right. Mm -hmm. Our thoughts control our feelings, Mm -hmm. which control our actions. I get that. Before a big presentation, like I have to pump myself up, you know, to calm, just breathe. Calm down. You got this, right? Yeah. right? She's like, you're the greatest. You got this, Lori. I do. But you. <laughs> but I have to if I'm going to go out and I, I think make an impact, a positive one, right? It's absolutely right. And if you sit there and tell yourself continuously, I'm going to fail, I'm going to fail, you might fail. Joey? Yeah. I'm thinking. I'm, <laughs> no, I'm hearing it because I'm my own worst critic in, yeah. in those things, uh, in presenting when I'm on the golf course, mm-hmm. I see a big body of water on the right side. Of course, I'm thinking I'm going to be terrible. So what do I do? I hit it in a big old body of water right there. Instead, right. I should be saying, you're going to pound the 300-yard drive right down Tiger the middle. Tiger Woods. Right. You are you're going to get the Woods. green jacket. <laughs> I believe. Can you just growl at us? Okay. Thank you. I'm a tiger. <laughs> so I think, it's, I think it's so important to um, not only have positive thoughts and an inner dialogue, but have helpful thoughts as well. So I don't know how good of a golf player you actually are, <laughs> Joey, not, if you can actually do it. But a helpful thought might be, I'm having fun and I'm going to do the best I can. Maybe not. I'm going to hit a hole in one. Yeah. No, I'm going to hit a hole in one. See, that's more attainable, I think, for you to do that. (laughs) Right. But this is actually good. This is good thinking. Uh, So I have a middle schooler. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of body image. Like everybody's built differently. And um, I mean, she's taller than everybody. She's just bigger than everybody else. And so I'm trying to help her 
see things positive, like what you're talking about. Right. And I think, you know, there's a push right now about positive body image, Mm -hmm. but we still, in this country, we have so many standards that are hard to reach up to. So how do we help our young women who are doing that, who are criticizing themselves for how they look? And I think it's really important to point out that they're loved and that they can love themselves. And that's helpful. Yeah. And I try to keep it real. Like, right. I have flaws, quiet Joey, uh, <laughs> as well. But, but just talking it through, like everybody is going to question whether you look good in that swimsuit or that dress or, you know, those kinds of things. Um, but how do you feel? Are right. You, you know, yeah. and teaching her to recognize when she has that negative thought about herself mm-hmm. to combat it with something that's going to make her feel better and for the long term as well. Yeah. The funny thing is, most of the time I find it's the people themselves. It's And you say your own worst, worst critic. Other people are fine with the way you look in a bathing suit, but it's just, it's you and like me and we, we look, we see every little flaw that we've got. Oh man, I wish, you know, this would be different. And it's funny if you just realize, okay, look, nobody else is care. Nobody cares what you look like in the <laughs> right. bathing suit. Right. And they're not going to remember you that fine. you wore those jeans the they're, other day. <laughs> they won't. You, they're not going to notice that, you know, skin tag you've got on your you know elbow. Right. You know, Hold so on, and it's, you know, it's right here. <laughs> <laughs> right. And it's that idea of, you know, um, do I look bad, but do I feel good? So mm-hmm. it's getting to a place where we can challenge those negative thoughts that we have about ourselves so that we can prepare to succeed. Now, because we're about to take a, a selfie after this episode, so I'm in the mirror, I'm like, man, we're kicking, <laughs> yeah. right? But then that selfie, that camera, and I'm like, what? That's what, a wide lens. What happened? But guess <laughs> what? Happened there? There's nothing wrong with a nice filter that's going to make yourself feel better. <laughs> so you we'll go. put a good filter I on I just it. wanted to make sure everybody was okay with that because I will put the filter on there. Right. Awesome. Well, we yeah. appreciate it. Uh, Sari, any other uh, words of wisdom? What do you want to leave us with? I think just don't judge yourself too harshly. Just mm-hmm. be there for yourself and be there for others and you'll succeed. Just try to be a good human every day. Yeah. That's it. Make the world yeah. a better place. That's what we're trying to do, all of us, and you listening there, too. All right. We appreciate you hanging with us. More to come. In every episode of The Gift of Life, we honor a hero. And today's hero is Carter Lorette. We learn more about Carter from his family. Carter Lorette was born June 16, 2016, and passed away February 27, 2019, at the age of two. Carter was diagnosed with autism one month before his accident. Carter had many struggles, such as not being able to speak or follow simple commands. But other than that, Carter was very smart. He loved to laugh, play with blocks, swim, climb on things, run, and play on his swing set. He was rough and tough. Not many things could hurt Carter. He was a joy to be around, sweet, kind, and lovable. Carter's favorite bear was his green gummy bear. Although his family loves and misses him, they were very glad that they were able to give many people a better quality of life. Carter was able to save four lives through the gift of organ donation. To learn more about Carter's story, visit the Heroes page at lopa.org. And now we pause and say thank you to Carter for the gift of life. our question and answer segment today, I've heard that the liver can regrow or regenerate. Is this true? I'm going to toss that over to our chief clinical officer, Joe. (laughs) What you got for us? Well, the answer is yes. Uh, Fortunately, uh, because of the amount of damage that we put into our bodies, 
it is very nice that it can regrow and regenerate. Mm-hmm. So the toxins and things, it, it basically repairs itself. And in the organ transplant world, we obviously use that to our advantage because we can split a liver and put it into a, someone who's it might be just a little too small for initially. And in usually four to six weeks, it regrows wow. and regenerates to fit the size that it really should uh, need. Incredible. So incredible. We want to hear more from you about more questions you have. So reach out to us. You can reach us on social media, email, or you can give us a call at 504-648-3477. We may even be able to play your message on the podcast. Another episode of The Gifted Life in the books, guys. Yeah, special thanks to Dr. John Seal for putting our model of every organ every time into action mm-hmm. with this uh, domino liver transplant and coming on and explaining a little bit about what it really is. I mean, my jaw's still on the floor. Yeah, like, it's, it's incredible, you know, in our presentations where we say, but we never know what's going to happen tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And when something like this happens, it's like, whoa, yep. it's happening. And, and the weird thing about it, besides that, is that you've got a perfectly healthy liver of someone that you recover from that person because it's no longer useful for that person and transplanting it lives for another 20, 30 years. And, and what's even more incredible is that these medical experts know that this process works. Yep. It's right? crazy. It's incredible. It's, an, it's just another way to make life happen. Yeah. And so we're going to have him back on, see what other kind of miracles yeah, are sure. being performed there, mm-hmm. huh? Before too long. And then we have to thank Miss Sarah, Miss yeah. Sarah Blakemore, or as she's known around here, Sarah Smiles. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I want to thank y'all for allowing me to be here. I've had yep. fun. Yeah. It's awesome. It's good. Well, we um, just love that, that you've taken up our, our cause with such passion and are helping these families and making your own journey. We like that. We miss you, Sally. Want to say that? I, I do miss you, Sally. This right. is tough. <laughs> Not you, Joey. Not you. You don't miss her. <laughs> miss you, Sally. <laughs> <laughs> and there we have it. Um, hopefully you enjoyed this episode. Uh, you learned with us um, in this ride here. And if you were inspired to register as an organ, eye, and tissue donor, you can do that now. Registerme.org. It just takes less than a minute, guys. It's really quick. And hopefully you'll go out and do something that you wouldn't normally do to help us make life happen. That's what this ride is all about. Thanks for listening. Until the next time. This is a production of the Louisiana Organ Procurement Agency, or LOPA. The Gifted Life is hosted by Lori Steele, Joey Boudreau, and Sally Gentry. Our executive producer is Kirsten Hines. Producer is Shalon Carraway. Intern is Rebecca Ranham. And we are recorded, engineered, and mixed in our Covington, Louisiana studio by Troy Perez. <laughs>